Welcome to session 23 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started the series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 23rd of January. Today we'll be looking at Exodus 19 to 21 and Psalm 23. But so far in Exodus, we followed Israel's journey out of slavery. The Israelites, once welcomed in Egypt, found themselves oppressed due to their growing numbers. Into this chaos, Moses is born. We read how he's raised in Pharaoh's household and how as an adult, he murdered an Egyptian man. In the wilderness, he encountered God through a burning bush and is chosen to liberate God's people. We then read how back in Egypt, Moses and Aaron asked Pharaoh to let their people go. Instead, he increased their oppression. God countered with a series of plagues, each targeting a different Egyptian deity. This ended with the final plague, that led to the death of all Egyptian firstborns. This in turn led to the Israelite exodus from Egypt, guided by God and Moses' staff, culminating in the parting of the Red Sea and drowning of Pharaoh's army. However, the journey to Sinai wasn't smooth sailing. Despite God's miraculous provision, like manna and quail, the Israelites' faith continued to falter. We read how they grumbled about food and questioned whether God even cared, failing the divine tests set before them. Before long, the Israelites attracted the attention of the Amalekites. This battle was won by Joshua as Moses lifted up God's authority embodied this battle was won by Joshua as Moses lifted up God's authority embodied in his staff over the battle. We also read this battle was won by Joshua as Moses lifted up God's authority embodied in his staff over the battle. We also read how Moses quickly became overwhelmed by the burden of leadership. So God used his Midianite father-in-law, Jethro, to give Moses some wisdom on how to delegate his responsibilities. Which leads us to today's reading. So let's jump in with Exodus 19 to 21. We now move into the second half of Exodus. The first half charted Israel's journey out of oppression in Egypt and into freedom. Now that the people are fully out of Egypt and have reached Mount Sinai, the focus shifts to God making a covenant with his people. A commitment to have a relationship with them. Up until now, the commitment was made to individuals. He promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But here he makes his commitment to a whole nation of people. What's interesting is God's desire for the Israelites to become a kingdom of priests. Read Exodus 19 verse 6. The role of the priest was to come close to God on behalf of someone else. It would seem then that God had wanted that closeness with all of the Israelites. They wouldn't need an intermediary, but could come to close to God themselves. And in keeping with God's desire to use the Israelites to bless the world, that's Genesis 12 verse 3, these Israelites as a nation would become priests to other nations, coming before God and interceding on their behalf. For this relationship to function, there has to be some rules. Every couple has to at some point decide what is and isn't acceptable in their relationship. So the next few chapters begin to outline the rules the Israelites need to follow in order to have a good relationship with God. What's important is that the Israelites realise they need to be wary the closer they get to the presence of God. God is powerful, and the fact that they can come close to him shouldn't be taken lightly. They are told to prepare themselves so they are ready for God. And when he comes, there is thunder and lightning and fire to show his raw power. We then get the big ten commandments. It's worth doing a study on these. For hundreds of years, the new Christian course of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. So they're worth knowing well. There is one that I want to focus on though, and that's number four. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Read Exodus 20 verse 7. 
We often restrict this to not saying God as a swear word or Jesus as a swear word. This doesn't really do the commandment justice. The Hebrew word here is nasar, and it has much more of a sense of carrying. When you carry someone's name, you carry their reputation. In every town, there's always one or two families that have a reputation. And anyone that carries that family's last name carries the family reputation. We'll say something like, there goes one of the Bradfords. I wouldn't mess with one of them. That is the sense that it's meant here. Got to say, look, if you're going to be one of my people, then you're taking and carrying my name and my reputation with you. For example, when you decide to call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are now a representative for Jesus and other Christians. You carry that reputation. If you're living in a way that lines up with God's ways, you're giving Christians... If you aren't living in a way that lines up with God's way, then you're giving Christians and therefore Jesus a bad name. So when God is telling the Israelites, do not take my name in vain, he's not worried about them using his name as a swear word. He's concerned that they carry his name well, that they don't drag his name through the mud by behaving poorly and not loving right. This is an important reminder to us today. If we call ourselves Christians, we can't just live however we want. We can't do things that are going to give Jesus a bad name. Instead, we have to do our best to represent Jesus well to the world around us. If the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are the covenant highlights, then Exodus 21 to 24 go on to flesh out the covenant in more detail. First comes a section on civil and criminal law. These laws include what you can and can't do with a slave, which crimes can be punished with death, and much more. While many modern readers might struggle with the idea of slavery, the ancient Israelite practice of slavery is vastly different to what we see it as. Rather than a strict case of one human earning another, this was where someone who'd fallen on hard times could sell themselves to another person and then work off that debt for no longer than seven years. In a time where there was no welfare system, this setup would be a lifeline for many. It's also worth reading these laws as teaching principles. For example, in Exodus 21 verses 33 to 34, we read a law about what happens if someone digs a pit and someone else's animal falls into it. This feels like an oddly specific law, but instead we can view it as teaching us the principle of what happens when something bad happens because of someone else's negligence. In this case, the negligent person is responsible for making things right. When reading through these laws, try thinking beyond the specifics to what is the principle behind the law. What is it trying to communicate to us today? And so let's look at Psalm 23. If Psalm 22 is one of the most famous lament psalms, Psalm 23 is one of the most famous psalms of trust. It's attributed to King David and can be split into just two simple sections. Verses 1 to 4, the Lord as shepherd, and then verses 5 to 6, the Lord as host. A short psalm, Psalm 23 is dedicated entirely to declaring God's faithfulness and loving kindness to his people. He is a God who protects and provides. He uses two different metaphors to do this. The first is of a shepherd. Just as sheep don't need to worry about their needs or try to provide for themselves. God's people can trust that God has all their needs in hand. And this isn't just a nice saying that isn't grounded in reality. When the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, God catered for all of their needs. God's provision for his people is a source of rest and reinvigoration. He leads them to rest, provides them water for their thirst and even guards their souls, leading them in righteousness. The psalm then looks at the forces of darkness and death and puts out that even those carry no power before God. 
His people need not fear these things because God will protect and comfort them. Which leads us to our second metaphor, a generous host. God invites his people into his presence and creates space for them. Even when it feels like they are surrounded by enemies, God is still there providing for them. But the greatest gift is not God's provision, but his presence. The psalmist ends grateful that they are allowed to dwell in God's presence. 